0: We are in Job, and we finished 21 last time, so we're going to do 22 tonight. This is Eliphaz. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Job is a ringing refutation of Calvinism. Listen to what just got said. What he said is, can a man be profitable to God? In other words, is your righteousness of any value to God? Now, how many preachers have you heard said that, well, people think that you've come to God and you've done God some great big favor? You ever heard that sentiment expressed? The other part of that sentiment is that God doesn't need anything. Nothing that you do benefits God. So the accusation on Eliphaz's part is Job is acting haughty and he is acting as if his righteousness is somehow a benefit to God. In other words, I'm doing God some great big favor by following his rules and believing in him. That's sort of the argument. And it's mostly, in all fairness, taught to rebuke pride. Lots of people think that they've done God some great big favor by coming into his kingdom. And in that sense, it's right. However, as a general theological statement, it is not correct. Because your righteousness and your behavior do matter to God. And so, on the one hand, the idea that you're doing God some big favor by minding your own business and doing well as a corrective for pride is a good message. But the other part of that is, you're not worth anything to God. You're not important to God. Your behavior is not important to God. And later on, one of them said, you're just a worm and dust. You're nothing. How do you get off standing up in front of God and declaring your righteousness when you're nothing? It's sort of a Calvinist idea. The idea that God made some people that are for the kingdom and some people that are not. And you can't choose which one of those you are. It's just God's decision. And everything is basically in God's hands. And what Job is saying is, my righteousness is something that God should take into consideration when he deals with me. And Job will say that in just a minute. But all throughout, these three friends of his who are rebuking him I would suggest lots of them right out of Calvinism. And you can get them preached to you in any church in the country today. Now, back to verse 2. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. So what he's saying here is, in behaving righteously, or behaving in any way whatsoever, quite frankly, You are doing it for your own benefit, and your behavior doesn't profit God. And one of the best ways of describing it that I've heard in in a single sentence is, God refuses to be alone. And since he's God, he has the capability to make someone who can be a companion to him. And the only way that he can make somebody to be a companion to him is if he makes someone with free will, which is something Calvinists deny. And by the way, secular humanists also deny it. interestingly enough. Secular humanism is in many ways very Calvinistic because they say everything is determined by chemical reactions and you really don't have any control. So the fact that God decided not to be alone and decided to create humanity expresses a need on God's part. In other words, if He didn't need us, He wouldn't have made us. Now, that isn't to suggest that we should get all pumped up and prideful and say, Oh, you need me, God. As Bill Cosby said, You know, He brought you into the world, He can take you out and make another one, looks just like you. So, this is not an invitation to pride. Please understand. But the fact is that God needs humanity because if he didn't need humanity, he would not have made humanity. Have I told you the story of Svengali in here before? Svengali is a literary character from the 19th century. A movie was made about him in the 1920s. It's actually a pretty good movie, silent film if you like silent films. Svengali was a hypnotist. And Spengali falls in love with this young woman by the name of Trilby, and he hypnotizes her. And as part of the hypnotic process, she develops this gorgeous singing voice. So Spengali takes her all over the world doing concerts. And Spengali is a guy that's older, not really very good looking. And Trilby, of course, is in her 20s, a beautiful young lady. Trilby, by the way, has a beau who follows them around all over the world trying to get Trilby back. And that's part of the story. But anyway, at at one point in the movie, Spingali has got Trilby in a room and he starts making out with her. And Trilby is under his hypnotic spell, so Trilby just goes along with it. And before things get pornographic, Svengali stops, and he looks up at the camera, and he says, this is just Svengali talking to himself. In other words, Trilby is not there. Trilby is, at that point, simply an artifact of Svengali's own will. There is no reciprocation on Trilby's part. So for God to have a companion that is not just God talking to himself, He has to make someone who is truly separate from him, who truly has his own free will, his own ability to make decisions, his own ability to decide whether to reciprocate God's love or not. Because otherwise it's just Svengali talking to himself. So what you see in Calvinism and similar philosophies is this idea that God doesn't need anything, God is completely self-contained. Whether or not you come to God, you don't do God any big favor either way. There's no profit to God whatever you do. And what I'm telling you is that's not theologically correct. Now, to say one more time so that we get it on the tape several times, this is not an invitation to pride. Because in that sense, it's a good lesson. But in a general sense, it is not. And so what... Job has been maintaining this entire book is, I have been honoring God, I have been living my life according to the way God says I should live my life, I have been doing everything that I believe God would have me do. Therefore, God should not be treating me the way I am being treated. What's happening to me is fundamentally unjust. The Calvinist argument is, Who are you? You're nothing but a worm and dust. God can do anything with you he wants. And from a power perspective, that's true. But from a free will perspective, that's not. As you read through this, as I say, it's it's a very Calvinistic set of arguments. So anyway, what Eliphaz is saying is your good behavior is only for your own profit. It doesn't do any good to God. And you should be good simply because it's good for you. And so in verse 3, is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to Him if you make your way blameless? Well, actually, yes it is. Because what you have done by making your way blameless is you have set yourself up so that you can, in fact, be a companion to God. And if you set yourself up so that you're wicked, you take yourself out of that realm. So yes, in a sense, in, you know, one seven billionth part, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's a big thing, but yes, there is some profit to God in your behavior, and he desires you to do that, otherwise he wouldn't have made you, otherwise he wouldn't have given you free will, and otherwise he would not have explained to you how he wants you to behave. He does care. Verse 4, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? In other words, he has reproved you and he has entered into judgment with you. Is he doing that because you fear him? And of course that's a rhetorical question, and of course the rhetorical answer is no. God wouldn't enter into judgment and wouldn't reprove you if you were blameless. That's what's being said there. Let me read it again now. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. So the Calvinist argument here is, God is just, God is fair. If this is happening to you, it's because you deserve it. So verse 5 again, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Extracted pledges of your brothers for nothing. What that means is extortion. A pledge would be something like, uh, if you go to a pawn shop, for example, and you give them your watch and they give you some money, your watch would be a pledge. Extracting pledges for nothing would be extortion. You have extracted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. The idea here is someone who is categorized as naked is someone who doesn't have a lot of clothing. And remember one of the things that it says in the Torah is if you take your brother's cloak as a pledge, you have to give it back to him at the end of the day so he can sleep warm. So the idea of stripping the naked of clothing doesn't indicate that these people are all running around bare-ass naked. It's that they have no defense. They have no wealth. They're vulnerable people. And you've taken their very clothing. Verse 7. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. These are all speculation on Eliphaz's part, But Eliphaz is going to the book of Proverbs or any of the Torah, and he's saying, based on what's going on with you, you must have been doing this kind of stuff. And by the way, just as an aside, in verse 6 and 7, these are all secret sins. These are sins that are committed against people who cannot make a stink. If you go to some prominent guy and you start going after his house or something like that, you'll be in court and it'll be in the media and all that kind of stuff. You've got somebody who's a homeless person and you go out and you take his plastic bag away so he has to sleep in the rain, there's not going to be any consequence to it because this guy is defenseless. And it's the same thing with you know, not giving water to the weary and holding bread from the hungry. These are all helpless people the man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived on it. So what that is saying is someone has taken control of land through power. You remember the story of uh, Ahaz and Jezebel and the guy with the vineyard? The powerful, the king, brought forth worthless witnesses and got this vineyard. And then what he did is he used his power to take land And he gave it then to people who were his cronies. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. So he's listed all of God's poster children for people who are defenseless and people who you are not allowed to oppress. And it says all over the Torah, you've got the fatherless, you've got the widow, you've got the stranger, and the poor. And you are not allowed to oppress those people. Because if you do, God will take up their cause. And what Eliphaz is saying here is, God has clearly taken up somebody's cause against you there, Bucko, Therefore, I am assuming that you have done all of these things to God's poster children for defenselessness. Down to verse 12. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? What is being said here is the same thing, by the way, in Psalm 73. And what the wicked say is, God doesn't see or care what we do. He is not watching what we do. That's what that's saying. So God dwells in darkness, and he can't see through the darkness to what we do. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do because God is not watching. And you can read Psalm 73, and it says exactly the same thing, except for the darkness part. Verse 13, But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him, so he does not see. And he walks in the vault of heaven. So what he's saying is God is aloof. He's in heaven. There's a veil of darkness between us and him. He's wandering around the marble halls of heaven or wherever he's wandering around, he's not paying any attention to us. That's what he's accusing Job of having an attitude about. And as I say, it's the same exact thing as in Psalm 73, which I recommend to you. Verse 15. Will you keep the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So the idea here is, People have walked in wickedness ever since they have been people. And what happens to them, according to Eliphaz, is their foundation gets snatched away and they get pulled away ahead of time. Yet, and I'm going to put in parentheses, for a time God fills their houses with good things. In other words, you have wicked people who do in fact have nice stuff. Verse 19, the righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks them saying, Surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. So the idea here is the wicked have good for a time. God fills their houses with good things. They are then snatched away before their time, and then the righteous see that and are glad. 21. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. I've said this half a dozen times, but I'll say it again. The advice of Job's three counselors is intended to be helpful. As I've said before, if you go into any church in the country and you walk in and say, I am a really righteous man. I do all the things right that God wants me to do. I'm following the law. I'm doing well. About half of the congregation come up trying to slap some sense into you. And it would literally be, slap some sense into you. Because the attitude would be, no, You're not. What you're doing is you're operating in pride. And you better get yourself humbled real quick here before your pride catches up to you. So what his friends are doing here is essentially trying to slap some sense into him and get him off of his high horse and get him to give up his pride, because then God will be able to deal with him in mercy. We've all read ahead in the book and we know that God rebukes his friends and we know that they're not helpful. And we know that what they're saying is wrong, but that's not their attitude. Their attitude is, whoa, Job, you're really on a pride parade here. You really need to come down off your horse and you need to get onto your face. That's what they're saying. So 21 again, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instructions from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up if you remove injustice far from your tents if you lay gold in the dust the gold of ophir among the stones of the torrent bed then the almighty will be your gold and your precious silver so the idea of laying gold in the dust and gold of ophir and the stones of the torrent bed that means is take your gold and throw it in the river because you're depending on your wealth what you need to do is you need to get rid of your physical wealth you need to get some sackcloth and ashes on and you need to hit your face and then God will be your golden and 26. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride, but He saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands. All right, that's going to take a little unpacking. The part about once you've humbled yourself, you've gotten rid of the trappings of power and wealth, humbled yourself before God, God will then listen to you, and your words will be established, and things will go well with you. I mean, that part is, is, is cool. 29 is the one that's a little bit difficult. So 29 again. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride. In other words, when somebody is humbled by God, you say it is because of pride, which is, by the way, what Eliphaz is saying to Job. So when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. God saves the lowly. Cool. He delivers even the one who is not innocent who will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands. You've heard the phrase, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what Eliphaz is saying here is when you get yourself right with God, your prayers will be even able to save those who are not innocent because you will be in right standing with God and God will listen to you. Sort of again like Moses. You know, Moses was able to save Israel in the face of God's wrath several times because Moses was in right relationship with God. So what Eliphaz is saying here is, He delivers, the righteous man, he delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands. Almost sounds messianic, which it does. But it is a well-established thing in Scripture and so forth that if you need prayer, you should go to someone who you consider righteous because the prayer of the righteous will be effective. And so what this is saying is, your prayer will even save those who are not innocent, because you will be in right standing with God. You all remember the negotiation that God has with Abraham over Sodom. If we can find ten righteous men in that city, I'll spare it. So the idea of the righteous being able to deliver those who are not themselves innocent is all over Scripture. And so what Eliphaz is saying is if you get yourself right, you will be in such a position. 23. 23. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Him, in this case, is God. So, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. So this is a recurring theme. This is not the first time he said that he would like to be able to come into the presence of God and present his case. And Remember, clear back in chapter 1, what was the bet? between God and Satan, that if you take everything away from Job, he will curse you to your face. That was Satan's take. God says he won't do that. So here's Job saying, I wish I could come before his court because I know he would listen to me in my righteousness. I know that he would give me a favorable judgment because I know that he is good. So in all of this, Job does not lose track of his understanding of the character of God. Job is, in fact, winning the bet for God. God has set Job up to do him great honor. And God has, in fact, put his own reputation into Job's hands. Because God said to Satan in front of all the heavenly court, my man Job is not going to curse me. Satan says, I can make him do it. So, Job, in that sense, has God's reputation in the palm of his hand, even though he doesn't know it. And because he never fails, God will wind up doing him tremendous honor, which in God's economy is apparently worth it. In other words, from God's perspective, the thing that Job is going to come out with at the end of this exercise outweighs anything that Job goes through during the exercise, because God is just and God is fair. He is not capricious. Verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portions of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. This is very much in the vein of I know my Redeemer lives. Remember that we did earlier? He says, I know God is just. I can't lay my hands on him to draw him into court. There's nobody else that can lay their hands on him to draw him into court. But I know at the end of this, I am going to come out as gold. It's very much in the same vein as I know my Redeemer lives. Job is clearly a giant of the faith. Verse 14, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. God is doing this to me. I don't have any idea why, and it isn't going to be done until he's done. This whole process has terrified me, but it has not, made me lose my understanding of who God is. Chapter 24. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? What he's talking about here is we know God is just, but we also know that people go through their lives behaving in ways that everybody around them thinks should invoke the judgment of God, and it does not. In other words, God does not have a fixed time of judgment. It is not up to man to decide when God will intervene and punish the wicked. It's up to God to make that decision. So some move landmarks. Well, you all know that you're not supposed to move a landmark. So they seize flocks, sheep rustling. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. donkey, of course, in that time was a truck or a tractor. And a fatherless person is someone who has no power. So what they have done is taken away the livelihood of the fatherless. And they take a widow's ox as a pledge. And again, an ox would be a beast of burden or a tractor or an economic asset. And it says in the Torah that you shall not take a millstone in pledge. Well, this is the same thing. Taking a millstone in pledge means that you have taken the miller's means of earning a living as surety for your loan which means that he can never earn the money to pay your loan back. So you're not allowed to take a millstone as a pledge or a surety. And so taking a widow's ox as a surety is the same thing. Verse 4, They thrust the poor off the road, the poor of the earth all hide themselves. In other words, they oppress the poor, they run them off the road, they treat them unjustly. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking gain, The wasteland yields few food for their children. So these are the poor that have been driven off the road by the rich. And they have been cast out into the wilderness. The idea is they've got to go out and forage for their living instead of earning a living or farming or doing something productive. They can't do that because the wicked have oppressed them. Verse 6, they gather their fodder in the field and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. You all remember, as I said it earlier, you cannot take a poor man's cloak as a pledge. Or if you do, you got to give it back to him at night so that he can sleep warm. Eight, they are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing. Hungry they carry the shoes. Among the olive rows of the wicked they make oil. They tread the winepress but suffer thirst. From out of the city the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. So the idea back in the first verse is God does not hold regular court. There is no schedule for God's court. When God decides to intervene and bring someone into judgment, that is at his discretion and his timing. And what Job is saying here is we all see instances where that judgment should be exercised, at least in our perspective, but is not. 14, the murderer rises while it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy. And in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also awaits for the twilight, saying, No one will see me. And he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. So he's talking about the wicked who go about when they will not be detected or or avoid being detected. Eighteen. You say, you, speaking now to Eliphaz, who made the accusation. So Job says, you say, swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their wounded. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. The worm forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered, so wickedness is broken like a tree. So what he's saying is, your opinion of the wicked is all of this stuff is going to happen to them. What I have observed of the wicked is lots of them get along just fine. And the fact that I am suffering and the wicked are not suffering is not necessarily an indication that God favors them and hates me. 21. They wrong the barren childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair life. He gives them security and they are supported. And his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? So what he's saying is lots and lots of wicked people die the same death that everybody else dies. And the implication is that it may in fact be rare for the wicked to get their comeuppance in this life please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.